From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 119 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm not too bad. How are you, Michael? Oh, I'm doing fine. Thank you. So hopefully I'm enjoying myself (laughs) in London and Paris these last couple of weeks. Exactly. And I'm trading your your ascots and fancy British wear for berets and whatever else happens in France. I don't know. I I, I lost track of where that was going real quick. I don't know. Scarves. (laughs) Don't they wear scarves? Sure. (laughs) (laughs) yes well because i am on the dreams unlimited travel adventures by disney london paris adventure uh you know this week and i was there last week craig and i are sharing episodes from deep within the bowels of the disney unplugged archives craig selected these episodes after and after swimming the crocodile infested moats surrounding the disney unplugged archives he had to correctly answer three questions (laughs) posed by the guardian of the archives beauregard von diz so, well done, Craig, that you, you answered his questions. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I tried hard. <laughs> yes. So, well, this week's episode is from the August 21st, 2014 episode of our classic Disneyland show. And that is titled uh, Little Golden Books and Disney. So, Craig, what inspired you to take this episode off the shelf? Well, one thing is, uh, you know, we we try to scatter in a lot of the the media episodes every now and then. We've been very movie heavy lately. I felt like, and even the the episode recently that we had about Claude Coates, you know, tying together the book that that they're trying to put together. That well, they will be putting together with it. Uh, Dave Bossert, of course, and then Alan Coates. Like we we got the books in that way, but I feel like it's been a while since we've had. A nice, a nice heavy book episode. So, mm-hmm. figured it was time to to really pull that one out there. And also, it's it's a topic that I think everyone sees the little golden books everywhere they go, but maybe they don't know quite as much about the history behind them and with Disney. So, I feel like uh, it's 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 just it's time to. To, to bring that one out of the vaults and, and share it with everyone in case they missed it the first time around. Yeah, this was actually one of my favorite episodes that I did. So, um, because it was just such a unique, you know, sort of corner of Disney history. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely something you you don't, you just don't hear people talking about it often, but I mean, there's there's multiple stores that I go to every single time. Um, I I check and see which which of the reissued Disney Golden Books that they actually have. So because I know one day I'm, I I probably have a whole bunch 
back at home in my parents' garage somewhere, just you know, sitting and deteriorating. So whatever isn't salvageable, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna eventually want to buy new copies of them to to have for one day. So plus, they're they're little pieces of artwork, like they're yes. they're really beautifully done. So mm-hmm. yeah, I, I I um I do have uh, quite a collection of little golden books, and I always. You know, when I see them in shops and all that, especially antique shops and collect- collectible shops, I always like to crack them open to see, okay, who are the artists yeah. you know, that were involved in these? Because they're, they, as you're going to learn in this episode, they were well-known Disney artists and animators um, who would work on these little golden books. So. Yeah, no, and it's... It, it, and I just, I love that they have made such a a nice little comeback here as Mm -hmm. of recent time you know like when the past couple years it's like when they they released the the everything i need to know i learned from disney little golden book and then the 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 reissue of the um the the little man of disneyland i yes (laughs) like it's just it's i i feel like they're so present right now that it's a great time to learn about it. So, yeah. yeah, and they're still making them. Yep. When a when a Disney film comes out, or a Star Wars film, or a Marvel film, they there's a little golden book. Yes, and so now you now you're going to learn that you have to keep buying them every single time there's a new movie that comes out. So, yeah, we're taking away money from you. I mean, we're not taking it, but we're making <laughs> you spend your money. Yes. So we'll gather around, and I'll tell you the story of Walt Disney and the little golden books. Now, who has a little golden book in their home? Me. And I have Somewhere a whole attic, ton of originals. <laughs> now, do any of you have a favorite little golden book? The Pokey Little Puppy. Yes. Oh, yes. Nice. <laughs> Luella, you have children. What about you? Oh, gosh. I love the Disney ones. I think I have Pinocchio. Mm-hmm. That's one of my favorites. That's my favorite classic film. Well, now, Charles Solomon, Disney historian and author of The Art of the Disney Golden Books, and Diane Muldrow, editorial director of Golden Books Random House and the author of Everything I Need to Know I Learned from a Little Golden Book, (laughs) recently hosted a presentation at the Walt Disney Family Museum on the Golden Disney Legacy. So I think this is something we're all going to be able to relate to. And as Tom said, this is going to be a walk down our childhood. (laughs) The first Little Golden Books were released in 1940. And if you look at your collection of Little Golden Books, so go ahead, pause, and go get (laughs) them, (laughs) you will see that many of them were illustrated by well-known Disney artists, including Mary Blair, John Hinch, Gustav Tengren, Art Grant, and Art Dempster. The clarity, bold graphics, and use of color in the illustrations these early Disney artists created for the Little Golden Books have influenced three generations of Disney and Pixar artists. In 1933, Samuel E. Lowe, president of Whitman Publishing, wrote Walt Disney asking if he would like to publish a big little book that would be a compilation of Mickey Mouse comic strips, similar to the very successful Dick Tracy and Little Orphan Annie big little book comic strip compilations. Lowe offered Disney a royalty of one-half cent per book with a substantial payment to apply against first royalties. 
This was the beginning of Disney Publications. Simon and Schuster introduced the Little Golden Book series in the fall of 1940 with 12 titles. At this time during the World War II era, children's books were a luxury, usually costing two to three dollars, and were written for older children. Parents would have their children wear gloves when reading the books, and many of the books had little to no illustrations. Little Golden Books were released at an affordable price of 25 cents, with illustrations in four colors and were aimed at younger children. The books were easily available, being sold in drugstores, tobacco shops, bus stations, and places where people went. Paper rationing was in effect at this time, but because the Western Printing Company was successful and doing a lot for the war effort, they had the paper allotment to print the books in mass quantity. Most families could afford 25 cents, and the books gave children a sense of normalcy during this tumultuous time. Children could read the little golden books and keep it themselves, since it wasn't expensive. The book plate in the front of the book allowed children to write their names on the book and own it. The first series of the little golden books was immediately popular. More than one point. Five million copies of the 12 titles were sold within five months. And Nancy, the most popular, continues to be the Pokey Little Puppy. Love it! Which has sold 17 million copies so far. Why am I not surprised? This book, illustrated by Gustav Tengren, was the first to be illustrated by a former Disney artist. Walt Disney was a collector of Tengren's artwork, and Tengren did the inspirational artwork for Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs and Pinocchio. The Walt Disney Family Museum even had an exhibit of Tengren's artwork from Walt Disney's personal collection. You can see Tengren's artistic style change from the 19th century Germanic-style children's book illustrations to his Disney-influenced structure in The Pokey Little Puppy and The Tawny Scrawny Lion. He also illustrated The Shy Little Kitten, The Lively White Rabbit, The Little Trapper, and The Arabian Nights. The first Little Golden books were 42 pages and jacketed. The jackets contained ad copy for war bonds. Due to paper rationing during the war, the books went to 24 pages without jackets. Despite the Little Golden Books being popular with the public, they were not popular with librarians at the time. Librarians like Anne Carol Moore, who headed the Children's Library Services for the New York Public Library System from 1906 to 1941, had a lot of influence over what was printed, and publishers would bring books to them for approval. Little Golden Books weren't considered luxury items, but they also weren't considered literature. Even though Walt Disney had been publishing books with Whitman since 1933, the studio did not produce a Little Golden Book until 1944. During World War II, 90% of the films made by the Disney studio were for the war effort. The studio did manage to turn out films and animated features, such as The Three Caballeros. In 1944, Simon & Schuster published Through the Picture Frame, which was based on a story by Hans Christian Andersen, and The Cold-Blooded Penguin, 
which retold the story of Pablo the Penguin from The Three Caballeros, who dislikes cold weather. And these titles are included in the catalog of Little Golden Books, although they lack the distinctive golden spine. The artwork from Through the Picture Frame was republished in 1944's Walt Disney's Surprise Package, which was illustrated by Disney artist Bill Peet and is considered the beginning of the golden age of Disney's golden books. The Surprise Package contained development art for other Anderson fairy tales, including a silly symphony based on the Emperor's new clothes, sketches for the little fir tree, and artwork for animated films in development such as Peter and the Wolf, Mickey and the Beanstalk, Peter Pan, and Lady and the Tramp. Walt usually didn't expose the developmental art for films until shortly before a film's release, when the artwork could be used for publicity. However, the post-war years were financially challenging for the studio, and the Golden Books provided a source of much-needed income. Western printed more than 5 million Golden Books in 1947. In 1946, Disney's royalties totaled $274,598, which in 1946 was quite a lot of money. Immediately after the war, Disney produced the package features, Make Mine Music in 1946, Fun and Fancy Free in 1947, and Melody Time in 1948, which combined several shorts into feature-length films. Sequences from these films were adapted to Golden Books. Johnny Appleseed, published in 1949, and Once Upon a Wintertime, published in 1950, contained pre-production artwork. And my very first book report I did when I was five years old and I was in first grade was on the little golden book Johnny Appleseed. And the, I remember doing the presentation, and I remember my first grade teacher did not consider Little Golden Books to be literature. And that's all I remember from that presentation. <laughs> so, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, released in 1949, was not a box office hit, but John Hench's illustrations for 1949's golden book, The Adventures of Mr. Toad, are admired by artists. Finally, in 1950, Walt Disney finds his audience with Cinderella. The film earns $4 million and saves the studio from falling into bankruptcy. One of the Disney Studios' women animators, Retta Scott Worcester, used Mary Blair's pre-production artwork as inspiration for illustrating the Cinderella Golden Book. Retta Scott Worcester also illustrated a non-Disney Golden Book, Christmas in the Country. After Cinderella, one or more golden books were published with each new Disney feature. Al Dempster, who was in charge of Disney's character model department, did the illustrations for new books tied to Disney features of the 1950s, as well as reissued books based on earlier films, including Alice in Wonderland in 1951 and Pinocchio in 1953. He collaborated with John Hench on the Peter Pan book in 1952. Dempster also illustrated Santa's Toy Shop in 1950. His character illustrations were very physical and gave a sense of 3D that came from his skill in sculpting models. 
Walt Disney expected the artists who illustrated the Golden Books to use the films as a springboard for the illustrations, but to interpret them in their own style. Walt Disney didn't want the books to reproduce what was in the film. The books had to be special and unique. A successful illustrator knows how to capture the mood so a child who cannot read can understand the scene and what is happening. And that is why animators were so successful as illustrators. Another reason for the popularity of the Little Golden Books was what Diane Muldrow called the Here and Now movement, in that children are more interested in a construction site than castles, knights, and fairies. So Golden Books published real-world books with titles like Fix It, Please, From Then to Now, which was about dinosaurs, A Day at the Supermarket, Nurse Nancy, we know now where we got that term. I love that one. Mm -hmm. And Baby Farm Animals. Children were introduced to classic art through the little golden books, The Iliad and The Odyssey, illustrated by Alice and Martin Provinson, who traveled to Greece to gain inspiration for their illustrations. A Martin had designed Yensid in The Sorcerer's Apprentice in the film Fantasia, and Alice animated Woody Woodpecker and Chilly Willie the Penguin for Walter Lance. They also illustrated the little golden books, The Color Kittens. Western Publishing was an investor in Disneyland, and several golden books were published to align with the opening of Disneyland in 1955. Donald Duck visited Disneyland with his nephews, in Donald Duck in Disneyland, published in 1954, and Walt Disney's Disneyland on the Air in 1955. About these books, John Lasseter said, I read Donald Duck in Disneyland so many times because I grew up in Whittier, a half hour from Disneyland. As I'm talking, I can vividly see the illustrations, the Disney artist's interpretation of Disneyland. My mom saved S&H green stamps and bought Disneyland tickets. That's how we were able to go for the first time. And that's what my mother did, too. We, we would save those S&H green stamps. And, and my summer chore was to fill the ticket books with green stamps over the summer. In the post-war era, the Disney Studios moved into live-action films and the True Life Adventure series. Rather than using photographs or movie stills, the golden books for these films were illustrated with paintings, including So Dear to My Heart, Davy Crockett, Pollyanna, Westward Ho! The Wagons, and The Shaggy Dog. At this time, before DVDs, Blu-ray, and Films on Demand, Children had to wait years for a Disney animated film, then wait seven years after a film's initial release to see it when it was re-released in theaters. The Golden Books helped to fuel the anticipation and preserve children's memories of the animation after the film left the theaters. There was a story I read in my research how when Snow White was re-released, People complained that, that there was a scene cut from the film of Snow White's mother sitting by a window doing some crocheting. And that was actually a scene that was in the little golden book, Snow White. But people, you know, the children had read that little golden book so often, they, they imagined it was also in the film. After Walt Disney's passing, there is less enthusiasm amongst artists and animators for the books that were published. 
the relationship between Western publishing and Disney remained friendly and profitable. And it, but in 1979, Mattel acquired Western in a stock swap deal. The new management announced plans to invigorate Little Golden Books, which had become more of an assembly line production, and the imaginative visual styles of the 40s, 50s, and early 60s had given way to a more pedestrian style. Little Golden Books was sold twice more until 1998, when it was on the brink of bankruptcy. The final blow came in April 2000, when Disney moved their publishing license to Random House, ending their 70-year relationship with Golden Books. In 2001, Random House and Classic Media purchased Golden Books in the U.S. Bankruptcy Court in Delaware. Diane Muldrow said the people at Random House had a true love of Golden Books, having grown up with them. I felt nothing but support when we were acquired, and there was a lot of excitement about what can we do to bring these books back. The new Random House Golden Books began reissuing classic titles and producing new books reflecting the imaginative style that had made the Golden Books so beloved. The first new little Golden Book was Finding Nemo. Disney determined they wanted the illustrations to be in the style of Mary Blair with her sense of color, her boldness of color, and her sense of dimensions. Subsequent Golden Books, Presto, Bolt, Frozen, Up, Wally, and Monsters, Inc. have been illustrated in the Mary Blair style and palette with her sense of pattern running through it. Chris Angelili, the editor-in-chief of Golden Books, has said that this retro style has proven so popular that other licensors are asking Golden Books to develop a retro style for their properties. For decades, the Disney Golden Books partnership functioned smoothly and profitably. Twenty years after publishing their first little golden book, Roy Disney awarded a Dosker to Western Publishing. The Dosker was given to companies who had a special relationship with the Disney Studios. Western Publishing was one of the first investors in Disneyland. Over the decades, Disney sent their artwork for golden books to the Western plant in Racine, Wisconsin, and never asked for it to be returned because the company thought it had little intrinsic value. In 1997, Ken Shu, Vice President, Global Art Development for Disney Publishing, presented Golden Books with a plaque commemorating their successful relationship with the Disney company. A year later, Golden Books was close to bankruptcy. One evening, Shu saw a television news story about the closing of a printing plant and its effect on a Midwestern town, and recognized it as the Western publishing plant in Racine. Shu realized the facility must still have all the art for the Disney Golden Books. The publishing license had been set up by Walt and Roy, so they would own all the materials for each book. Ken Shu was determined to save the original Disney illustrations and sent a letter to Western Publishing. And the story goes that he typed up the letter and then went out to um, Kinko's and had it photocopied on bright, like, neon yellow <laughs> paper with the Disney letterhead so that they would be sure to see that letter in Racine. <laughs> um. 
Throughout 1999, he received 333 cartons of material from Racine, which wow. included John Hench's illustrations for Peter Pan, Al Dempster's illustrations for Pinocchio, and Alice in Wonderland Meets the White Rabbit, and Retta Scott's Cinderella. Sadly, John Hench's illustrations for The Big Golden Book of Mr. Toad had been sold at auction. As Shu went through the mountains of artwork, he realized there was the chance to publish the material like it had never been published before. He put together a PowerPoint presentation of some of the best artwork and showed it to the editors in New York. This led to the publication of Walt Disney's classic storybook in 2001, which included artwork from Once Upon a Wintertime, Peter Pan, Sleeping Beauty, and other popular golden books. And all those golden books were illustrated by Mary Blair. When Shu took some of the artwork to Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, two of Disney's nine old men, they praised the powerful use of color in the paintings of John Hench and Al Dempster and how effectively it communicated with the audience. Shu invited John Hench, who was still working at the company, to talk about his illustrations. He would tell us about the paints he used, but he didn't talk very much about himself. Hench said, you've got to have something extra on the page, like an illuminated border in a medieval manuscript. Sometimes they're decorative. Sometimes they create a little visit visual subtext that carries the reader on to the next page. If Walt Disney told you to illustrate something, you had to go beyond what a typical illustrator would do. The visual styles of the early Little Golden Books have had a profound influence on today's Disney and Pixar animators and artists. You didn't feel you had to ask your parents to read one to you, like a bigger book. They were for you, says Glenn Keane, who animated the characters Beast and Aladdin. I enjoyed the Little Golden Books long before I could read the words. I just followed the images. The illustrations offered artistic children a visual stimulus other books rarely offered. Beauty and the Beast producer Don Hahn adds, I never was a big reader. What I liked about the Golden Books was the pictures. A lot of times I would read them without reading them. I wouldn't even look at the words. It was the drawings that interested me. One reason I gravitated towards the Golden Books was that I loved to draw while I read, Pixar effects artist Andy Jimenez remembers. I started drawing in the books, adding my own little characters and stories, so I remember them as being very interactive. The appeal of the illustrations transcended national boundaries. Carlos Grangel, who designed the puppets for Tim Burton's Corpse Bride, remembers having golden books as a boy in Barcelona, Spain, that he was given for the illustrations. I didn't know English yet. Spanish artist Lorelei Bove, who illustrated The Princess and the Frog, recalls, My mom would buy them and add subtitles, translating them into Spanish for us. The son of Korean immigrants, Pixar artist Peter Son, recalls, I grew up in a grocery store. My father and mother worked a lot of the time. In the evening, my mother would try to teach me English by reading to me. A lot of the golden books were visual experiences. She couldn't read the language, so she would make up stories from the pictures. All children like to draw, but many talented children who grew up to work in the animated indus animation industry were fascinated by the illustrations in their little golden books. The books stimulated their imaginations, encouraging them to draw, often copying the images in their books. Wreck-It Ralph 
art director, Ian Gooding, says, The cover of my copy of Bambi has deep impressions all around the characters because I'd put tracing paper over it and draw them. I must have tried 20 times to paint that thing. You looked at the Disney books over and over. The illustrations in the Disney Golden Books were more difficult to copy than the stills from the film because the characters in the films usually had outlines and flat paint that's easier to imitate than something shaded and done in watercolor, adds Andreas Deja, who animated Scar and Lilo. It took more, more effort and time to learn from those illustrations than from standard stills, but I enjoyed it very much. As Deja notes... The deceptive simplicity of the gouache and watercolor paintings in the books was difficult to imitate. But Beauty and the Beast art director Brian McEntee explains, While I was learning to read, I was also learning to see. I was learning the symbolic language of visuals. The golden books were teaching me both at the same time, which I think is their real strength. The animals in Bambi or the tawny scrawny lion are not photorealistic, but no kid is going to tell you that's not a deer or that doesn't look like a lion. The Golden Books taught me to observe things. When I would draw, I would see things differently than I would have without those books. The Golden Books were my first big influences. The characters were so simple and the shapes were so strong in the illustrations that they struck you in a way a lot of other books didn't adds Toy Story 2 co-director Ash Brannan. That design influence stays with you. I saw things in these books I later learned make good design. Artist author Russell Schroeder noted, I continued to buy golden books long past the age when a person growing up normally would. I love Disney so much, and I wanted to work for Disney, so the books provide an introduction to some Disney artists. You felt you knew them, just as people felt they knew Walt Disney, because he came into their homes every Sunday night on television. By studying the Golden Book illustrations, Pixar artists have found inspiration for innovative color and design. Most contemporary animators refer to Mary Blair as being an influence on their style. The Golden Books are one of the sources Pixar artists have studied for ways to stylize and simplify humans that would enable the animators to move the characters convincingly. Artists who grew up during the baby boom era contrast the quiet moments they spent reading the Golden Books to the nonstop activities of the children of today, who are continuously bombarded with images from television, video games, and the Internet. Intriguing imagery was harder to come by for children of the 50s and 60s, and they had more time to look at their books, draw, and daydream. The success of the Finding Nemo Little Golden Book ushered in a new era of Disney Pixar Golden Books, reflecting the influence of the classic titles and incorporating the personal styles of the new artists. Disney Pixar publishing art director Scott Tilley has said, a little golden book will be produced for almost every new feature, but there may also be a fun idea that got cut from the storyboards that would make a great book. John Lasseter says, because the golden books have influenced the Disney and Pixar artists so much, to go to one of the young artists and say, we'd like you to do the golden book of this film is one of the greatest treats you can give them. Jean-Paul Orpinas, 
effects artists on Atlantis, Treasure Planet, and Home on the Range, illustrated the Up and Wally Little Golden Books, and has said, Illustrating a Little Golden Book was a dream come true. I stayed up late to have something to give my children. It was never for the money. It was for the love of Disney and what those books gave me. If you would like to learn more about Disney and the Little Golden Books, I encourage you to read Charles Solomon's book, The Art of the Disney Golden Books, and Diane Muldrow's Everything I Need to Know I Learned from a Little Golden Book. Both books are filled with beautiful artwork from the Golden Books, and Charles Solomon's book provides a fascinating exploration of a little-known chapter of the Walt Disney Studios' artistic history. Both books are available at all major online book retailers and at the Walt Disney Family Museum gift shop. Walt Disney is quoted as saying, There is more treasure in books than in all the pirates' loot on Treasure Island and at the bottom of the Spanish Main. And best of all, you can enjoy these riches every day of your life. So pick up a little golden book off your shelf and enjoy the riches of concise storytelling combined with beautiful artistic imagery. Well, we'll close the book on this episode because it's time for This Week in Disney History. So, Craig, are you ready for um, Settle In? See if maybe we have some literary references this week. Uh, Hopefully. So, So. hopefully I do well. (laughs) Okay, well, October 13th. On October 13th, 1960, Walt Disney returned to his boyhood home of Marceline, Missouri, to help dedicate Walt Disney Elementary, a new public school. Walt arrives for the dedication ceremony by train, the first time that the Santa Fe Super Chief has ever stopped in Marceline. He donates playground equipment to the new school and an item from the 1960 Winter Olympic ceremonies in Squaw Valley, California. What was the item that Walt donated? Oh, um, I, I know we would have talked about this on the, the episode that we did. And I, I can remember talking about this 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 situation uh the this experience i just don't remember what it was though well there's one at the burbank studios if that helps that still does not help me no (laughs) (laughs) it was a flagpole that had flown flags over the olympic ceremonies Hmm. and it has and they all had little plaques on them okay i don't think i was aware that the one of the flagpoles in the studios was also from that too so yeah All right, October 14th. Who made his grand entrance with Mickey Mouse at Epcot on October 14th, 2010? Made their grand appearance at Epcot. Oh, I I know, because I was here for this. Uh, Duffy. (laughs) That's right. Duffy the Disney Bear. First hand sewn by Minnie Mouse as a gift to Mickey, Duffy, dressed like a sailor, was designed to be Mickey's companion during his travels. The character had been popular with guests at Tokyo Disney Sea theme park, and is actually wildly popular at all the Asian theme parks. Yeah, I think if they would have uh, gave him more time here, he would have been popular. So, yeah, if they could, yeah, maybe it was how they introduced him. I don't know. Uh, I feel His like little friends are adorable. Yeah, and. There's plenty of people who loved 
Duffy and collecting Duffy's and would have loved the friends too. I think it's more of a, they wanted the culture to be the exact same right out the gate. And Mm -hmm. that wasn't going to happen, but they also, it's a general lack of understanding of not knowing that most Disney fans here will complain about something for the first little while or they'll go one of the two ways so either complain about everything like it's the worst right after it debuts or they'll they'll uh instantly instantly love it and it was a complete success but regardless it it needs more than just a couple years of being ingrained in there for for the fans to really to really really get attached to it and i felt like they pulled pulled duffy too quickly Mm mm-hmm but I I enjoyed seeing him when I was I was at the Asian parks. Yeah. So. Okay. Okay. October fifteenth, Walt Disney World's newest show debuted on October fifteenth, nineteen ninety eight. What is the name of the show and where is it located? Um. Uh, that's I. It's a little too broad for me to pinpoint on it, so I don't even have a guess. Well, there was a version of it at Disneyland. Then I would say I'm going to go with Fantasmic. That is correct. It debuted at the Hollywood Hills Amphitheater, located at the Disney MGM Studios. The 26-minute performance required 88 cast members. Yeah, it's still rocking today. It is. October 16th. What did Walt and Roy Disney do on October 16th, 1923, the day after they signed a contract with M.J. Winkler, who's a New York cartoon distributor, to produce a series of animated short subjects entitled Alice Comedies? I'm going to just be a little broad with it but i'm assuming this is when they decided to to begin their studio that's right they founded the disney brothers studio as a partnership at this time the disney brothers studio cartoon well cartoon studio is located on kingswell avenue in los angeles california and it's a structure in the back of a realty office that the brothers are renting Although in February 1924, they will move into the building next door, taking over the whole first floor. On this same day, Walt also writes a letter to the parents of actress Virginia Davis, persuading them to move from Hollywood, uh, move to Hollywood from Kansas City so that she can star in his new combination live action and animated short. So that this is the beginning of all the magic. So. Anyway, okay, October 17th, three Disney characters made their debut in Walt Disney's Sunday comic strip on October 17th, 1937. They have been created by cartoonist Al Taliaferro. The cartoons will make their screen, the characters will make their screen debut in a cartoon short in April 1938. There's not many trios out there. But I'm going to go with Huey, Dewey, Louie. That's right. Donald Duck's identical triplet nephews. Uh, They will later later appear in the 1938 animated short, Donald's Nephews. Very good. October 18th. 
United States President Nixon visited Walt Disney World on October 18th, 1971 for a special showing of which attraction? Uh, would that be the um with you know what i maybe hall of presidents that's right that's right <laughs> he wanted to view his audio animatronic double now the president had hoped to attend the opening ceremonies of Walt Disney World later in the month, but due to the difficulty in getting the proper amount of security, that those plans had to be canceled. Yeah. So. Which is surprising. You think that they could have had the proper amount of security, but yeah, anyway. it's, life's tough. <laughs> yeah. Okay, October 19th, Epcot Center's first thrill ride opened on October 19th, 1989. What is the name of the attraction and in what pavilion could it be found? Well, that would have been, for a thrill attraction, it would have been probably Body Wars and Wonders of Life. That's right. Okay. Body Wars began sending guests through the human bloodstream at the brand new Wonders of Life Pavilion. This was a motion simulator ride featuring a film directed by Leonard Nimoy. Of course, Star Trek fans know him as Mr. Spock. Body Wars can carry 40 passengers in each of four 26-ton simulators. The cast of the Body Wars film features Tim Matheson as Captain Braddock, Dakin Matthews as Mission Commander, and Elizabeth Shue as Dr. Cynthia Lair, who is investigating white cell response time to a splinter penetration. Also debuting on this day at the MetLife-sponsored pavilion is the theater show Cranium Command, a humorous presentation on the importance of the human brain, and the short film Goofy Over Health, a multimedia show about healthy living hosted by Goofy using clips from his cartoons, and The Making of Me, about birth and life, starring Martin Short. Did you, did you experience all these, Craig? Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I have. I, I with Wonders of Life, my biggest memories obviously would go to uh, Body Wars and Cranium Command and and Making mm-hmm. of Me first and foremost. But no, it's it definitely spent spent a good amount of time there over the years. So yeah, I did too. Yeah, and I, and our children went there as well. I doubt they remember it, but yeah, I definitely wrote it. I liked Wonders of Life. So I, I did was, too. I thought it was very well done. Yeah, I it's uh, of all the things that could have been dropped into disrepair and then obviously go through to to where it's heading now with the play pavilion and stuff. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have pegged that as the 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 place for it to happen, but that's it. It did so, mm-hmm. and that's that's that. <laughs> yeah, too bad because I think that. Um, you know, it, 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 I think that that's when they could have easily kept going and refreshed and all that. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, every every part about it could have been easily updated. So, mm-hmm. I mean, we know how easy it is with motion simulators to update it as they did it pretty seamlessly with with Star Tours going from its old film to what's there today. And, I mean, Cranium Command was so simple. 
that that could have been updated just by casting new actors and doing a new little movie with it all. So everything could have been been changed without very little issues. But I guess it's probably more about finding the the money. And now in this day and age, if it's not connected to a movie, then doesn't doesn't matter at all. Yeah, yeah, that's too bad. So uh, anyway, all right. Well, you did very well this week. Thank you. Thank you very much. well if all goes as scheduled i'll be back with you next week with my trip report about my time in london paris and disneyland paris exciting it is it is and i think it's another one of those times right the 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 day i land is the day we record yeah (laughs) So, uh, you know, so I'll be reading from notes hastily written. Yes. So it's, well, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll make the best of it. So you'll, the memories will be there. The notes will be scribbled down, but the, yes. the memories will be what's important. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Craig, until next time, how can our listeners connect with you? As always, you can find me on the different shows on the Dis Unplugged Podcast Network, and then anytime on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at Michael at WDWinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at MBowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studios, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes at disunplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. <laughs>